Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Bible Church Podcast. Always reforming because we're always conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Welcome back. We're going to continue our study in the law by moving on to Romans chapter 2. Now what we're going to find in Romans chapter 2 is this idea of a covenant. We're going to get into Jewish and Gentiles distinctions. The larger purpose of this portion of the book of Hebrews is to establish the absolute guilt of man. That God is just when he judges the sinfulness of man. That when we examine all the evidence, we will come to the conclusion that man is guilty before God, and God would be just in condemning all of mankind. Now last week we studied about the nature of God, and how that there are certain actions which man does, which has a necessary relationship to the nature of God, and his goodness, his righteousness, his eternal power and divinity. So Paul begins chapter 2, well, we know Paul didn't write in chapters and verses, Chapter 2 begins with, therefore, a conclusion. A conclusion of his previous thought is this. Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for there, wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Here we return back to the necessary relationship of our actions to the nature of God. God must act in truth. God is a God of truth. Jesus Christ calls himself the truth. God must abide in truth, and his actions and judgments must be according to the truth. All of your actions are known to God. God knows the truthfulness, the reality, the existence, of what you do. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for, when, wherein, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. This is the essence of what it means to be a creature of God. God cannot ignore his relationship to his creatures. God cannot, God cannot ignore his own righteousness, his own standards of goodness. God is immutably opposed to wickedness, and therefore he is immutably and forever opposed to the wickedness of man. And the wickedness of man is defined by the very being of God, as we went over last week. Now, when we act contrary to the nature of God, that forces God to deal with that situation 
and the truth of it. God can't hide it. He can't ignore it. He can't pretend it didn't happen. And he knows it perfectly. Therefore, it can't be hidden from him. There's no statute of limitations. But God will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, this is must be the foundation of everything that Paul's going to build on afterwards. Paul's established something of the nature of God. Paul is established that man is in relationship to God and that man is accountable to God. Man knows the goodness of God and man is without excuse. We know the judgment of God and we are inexcusable and that we condemn ourselves in our judgment about things that we perceive to be injustice unrighteous, and sin. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And if we commit such things, then God must judge that perfectly and righteously. This is the foundation for man in his existence. And the reason I'm pressing this point is that everything else, all the other acts that God does in the history of redemption, must conform to this foundational truth. No covenant, no acts of God or acts of men can contradict this foundational truth that there are certain actions that God cannot be reconciled to. And no covenant that God establishes can undo that. God cannot create a covenant with mankind that lessens his indignation against unrighteousness. So everything else from here on out, we must see in light that there is a principle that God will judge us according to his righteousness. He will judge us according to our deeds. And our deeds, as to the goodness or sinfulness of them, are defined by the very nature and character of God. Now, we're not just simply left here. Because so far, the nature and character of God has been defined simply in two or three things. His eternal power, his Godhead, and his sure judgment, his righteousness. The coming judgment is sure. We know God is a judging God, he's a great God, he's a powerful God, he's a creator God, but we still don't have a definition. Our minds are still kind of darkened as to exactly what pleases him and what does not please him. For what actions are we going to be judged about? We don't know in full detail right now, do we? That's a very sad thing, isn't it? Here is man, ignorant of what offends the almighty God of the universe. Certainly doesn't bode well for man, does it? What a sad thing it is to not know the will of your maker. Now, God is going to do something in mercy and grace, as we went on uh, said previously, that right now nothing can constrain God. Not the future actions of man, nor, as we went over last week, nor does the will of man come into play at all. We are the guilty. We have no right to sit in judgment of the judge. We lost our place at the table. And therefore, anything God does in mercy or grace must be out of his will to be merciful and to be gracious to us. We cannot twist God's arm to give us any more information give us even our very next breath, and yet God is pleased to do so. And what we are introduced here in the second chapter of Romans is this, the written word of God. God in his mercy and in his grace communicated to man. Then under the penmanship of Moses, committed this communication to man 
in writing to be passed down from generation to generation for all these thousands of years down to our very day we have the very words of god what a gracious god to not only reveal his mind but in his providence to commit his mind to writing that can be preserved passed down studied understood applied what a kind god he sees the situation and he could be without pity without mercy and still be good and just and still be righteous and yet he moves in mercy to communicate to us a a set of rules a set of truths that we can apply in our lives to not do things that offend his very being he can teach us how to please him and in doing so what he is really teaching us is who he is as we learn how to relate to god in our actions we learn about who god is and that he is glorified and we are blessed the knowledge of god is a blessing to man we left off in verse six who will render to every man according to his deeds to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor immortality eternal life no god offers salvation to sinful man and how do we go about getting this honor and immortality and eternal life well do good that's what our text says if you do good god will bless you but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doeth evil now here we come to the covenants to the jew first and also to the gentiles but glory honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the jew first and also to the gentile for there is no respect of persons with god and here's my point that this nature of god is consistent whether or not you are in the jewish covenant or not there are many nations that were not under a covenantal relationship to god god was under no obligation to establish this covenant with israel god was under no compulsion to choose abraham out of any man in the world and the only reason for god's choice was that's what he wanted to do as dictated by his righteousness and dictated by his wisdom god in his wisdom chose abraham and his family and his seed to make a covenant with them now well we will get into some particulars about the covenantal relationship of israel to the gentiles and then the covenant of israel to the co the new covenant as founded by jesus christ of which we are partakers of thank you lord but right now the fo paul's focus here is not necessarily the different covenants but it's how the nature of god is consistent in those covenants if you offend God by these actions, no matter what covenant you are in, God will be angry with you. And if you do certain actions, God will be pleased with you, covenant or no covenant. God cannot not be pleased by our obedience, by our righteousness, because that reflects who he is, and that's a good thing. Now the question for us, though, and which will be culminated in halfway through chapter 3, is, well, what camp are you in? Are you in the camp? that has not obeyed the truth have you ever done anything unrighteous have you ever fallen short of the glory of god look at verse 12 for as many as sinned without the law that is without the written law now you have to be careful about this word law from here on out it has a wide variety of meaning 
and it is used in various contexts, especially in the writings of Paul. So you can't apply just a single definition to the term law. In this case, usage determines meaning. Is it referring to the Old Testament? Is it referring to the first five books of Moses? Is it referring to ceremonies? Is it referring to the Ten Commandments? Is it referring to principles of operation, such as the law of gravity? Paul uses all of these different uh, meanings in the word law in his various writings. So you cannot say, just apply a simple, uh, you cannot apply a simplistic meaning to the word law in the writings of the epistle Paul, in the writings of the apostle Paul. Now, what do I, why do I say that this is the written law? Well, not having the law, not being under the covenant of the law, was the Jewish-Gentile distinction. And it is not that there is they were without law altogether, as we're going to get into. They were under law. They just did not have the written law. They did not have the law as a covenant. But they did have law, the very same law, because it's the very same God. And that's his whole point here in Romans chapter 2. And it's very important, especially when we get to chapter 6 and 7, where people try to manipulate the term law and the meaning of some of the uh, application of the law there covenantally. And then to come away with saying that the Gentiles or the Christians under the new covenant don't have anything to do with the law. But what we're about to get into is that is an impossibility. Because what, what we're going to find out, especially here, is that the law defines who God is. And I propose a question to you. Are you under God? If you are under God, you are under law. No covenant can change that. Law now becomes definitive of who God is. And his essential attributes which relate to certain actions. Now, in this chapter 2, God's going to clarify the nature of some of these actions. And we're going to recognize these actions because of the way God has made us. Jew and Gentile are all created equally in the image of God. And Jew and Gentile equally all have this knowledge about God. And the truth of God resonates within the soul of all men. Now they suppress that truth. They reject that truth. They actively fight against it. But it's there. It's there. Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. Now this is especially true when we begin to see how the these actions begin to get... Uh, this is especially true as now God begins to codify or officially proclaim, legally proclaim with statutes things to do and things not to do. He puts words to concepts and ideas. Man is made in the image of God, and there are certain things that we know God offends God. They offend us. But how, how do we write that down? I mean, if you were completely feral and away from civilization, how would you write down a, a, a code of conduct? How would you define morality? It would be very difficult, wouldn't it? But God, in his mercy and grace, has done that for us. He has given us his definition of things that please him and offend him. And these are what I'm saying by things that appease him, or uh, not appease, things that please him and things that offend him, 
is in direct relationship to his very nature. So he's going to take this essential aspect of his nature and apply words to it so we can learn it. Now listen very specifically. When God created a covenant with the Jews, this covenant with the Jews that he made with Moses and the 600-something laws and the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt and Mount Sinai and covenants and blood and high priest and temple worship and the whole nine yards, all of that must conform to the truth and it must conform to that knowledge which is inherent in man, as stated in chapter 1. It cannot contradict that. And this is also vitally important, that when God codifies certain actions, that there are some things that he has codified, made law, put words to, made it official, that codification does not create that law. If you don't hear anything I'm saying, Hear this, God's codification of essential righteousness does not create that righteousness. Just because God writes it down doesn't mean that it came into existence. Now, there are many, many things that God entered into covenantally with man that did come into existence and are not essential to his nature. There are many things. Most of the Old Testament covenant contains what is called positive commands. The difference is this. Read Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 28 through 31. Those things offend God whether or not he's in covenant with you or not. But there are things that God can add to that, such as when he tells Noah to build a boat. Well, that's not building boats is not an essential aspect of his nature. Obeying him is, you see. So Noah is obligated to obey God no matter what God says. Martin Luther is famous for saying, if God told me to eat dung, I would do it and know it was good for me. That's completely logical. If God told you to take your son, your only son, whom thou lovest, and kill him in a sacrifice for me, you'd be obligated to do it. So therefore, if God tells you to kill a lamb, sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, eat it with unleavened bread, if God tells you to build a tabernacle, God tells you, go live in this land, do these laws, wear these clothes. God is, God is able and righteous to tell you to do anything he wants to do, but he cannot ever tell you to do something which contradicts his own nature. Therefore, you can trust everything that God tells you to do. There's a harmony in everything that God does. Everything that God does is perfect and righteous. God is also not obligated to do things on your timetable. God can tell you to do anything he wants to when he wants to. God can reveal any truth when he wants. If God wants to grant mercy and give you hope, give you something to hold on to until that mercy is fully realized, then he can do that when and where and how because he's not obligated to do, to do it in the first place. And God can do it as much as he wants when he wants. For example, and isn't this so kind and gracious of God? God told Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And that was something Eve could hold on to until it was realized. And God gives these progressive promises, these progressive revelations about a redemption that is going to happen. That he's going to have a fully realized mercy upon sinful man. 
and he does this bit by bit throughout world history. And he reveals more and more details. And one of the chief ways he has done this was by establishing various covenants with different people. And he attaches something very special. He attaches promises and oath to his words. This is not done to motivate God. Sometimes when we promise something, it's an extra motivation. We better do it because we promise. God needs no such motivation. Therefore, his promise is not for himself. His promises, his oaths are for us and for our benefit and for our good. Therefore, all covenants God has ever established for man, they are all gracious and they are all for our good. They are all for our hope and they are all for our faith. Not a one, not a single covenant, not even the covenant of Moses is a bad covenant. Now, none of these covenants are complete in and of themselves. But they serve a purpose. That purpose was to add a little information about the one who would accomplish this mercy. How he would do it. But all of these covenants must contain the essential elements of righteousness that are reflected in God's nature. That's why God can take these elements of necessary righteousness and put them in a covenant and obligate a people to do them when in all reality they were already obligated to do them. God can also take that same covenant and add extras, if you will. Add things not necessary. Add forms of worship. That's what he did with Israel. He took Israel and he codified essential righteousness. And we're going to get into this more specifically because we're going to put a name to this. He codified the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is a further revelation of the essential righteousness of God. The Ten Commandments are things that all men, everywhere, always relate to God in. Even the redeemed saints in heaven relate to God within the relationship to the Ten Commandments. Redemption doesn't free us from the obligation of obedience. And being saved, being glorified, doesn't free us from who God is. It doesn't change God. Therefore, our relation to him doesn't change. There's certain essential aspects that must always remain the same. God himself can't change them. But God can take this knowledge and write it down and codify it, put it in a covenant, obligate this people to do extra things, and then do away with that covenant, finish that covenant, abrogate that covenant, including the covenantal relationships of that essential righteousness, without doing away with the essential righteousness. To put it another way, God can take the Ten Commandments, put them in a covenant made with Jews, do away with the covenant with the Jews, and still keep the Ten Commandments. Because God can't do away with the Ten Commandments. Let me show you from Romans chapter 2 why I'm bringing up the Ten Commandments. Now, verse 12, For as many as sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, and as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when Gentiles have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. Now this is why I say it's a writ the written law here, because they do by nature the things of the law. 
Look at verse 15, which showed the work of the law, the same law, written in their hearts. So there is a law that the Jews had written down. There are, there's an, a, a part of that Jewish covenant that was written down, which is written on the hearts of the Gentiles, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness, their thoughts, the meanwhile excusing, their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So there is a law written in the hearts of all men. This is that same, this begins to identify what it means to have eternal power and divinity, the righteousness of God. This law helps to identify that. It further clarifies it, given by God in his grace. Now let me ask you, what law was written on their hearts? Was the Passover written on their hearts? Was the thou shalt not see a kid in his mother's milk written in our hearts? What, what words from the Jewish covenant were written on the hearts of Gentiles? Well, we don't have to guess very much because Paul labels them here. Look what it says. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and makest, and resteth in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. What a kind God to give his laws that we may be instructed out of. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, and a light of them which are in darkness. Isn't it sad to have people who don't have the written law? An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thyself. If thou preachest that a man... Now look what words he uses. Thou shalt not steal, dost thou steal. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery. Dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? For thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, Their circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Wherefore, if the circumcision keep the righteousness of the law, Shall not the uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Shall not the uncircumcision, and shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcised, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of god now i want to get into verse three just real quick what advantage then has the jew or what profit is there in circumcision much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of god now in this chapter he's drawing a distinction that god's righteousness is equal whether or not you are in a covenant with him which the sign of the covenant was circumcision that there are aspects that God has written down, the law, that those extra commands don't cover up. Okay, so circumcision is not an essential aspect of the righteousness of God. You can go, you can be not, you can be uncircumcised and still please God. That's what Paul says here. But just because God gave the command to a certain people to circumcise, 
and they keep that portion of their covenant with God doesn't mean that they can ignore and break the more serious aspects of the law. And he names specifically several of the Ten Commandments. Verses 21 and 22. He specifically nails them to the Ten Commandments. Nowhere. He's specifically saying here that if the Gentiles keep the Ten Commandments, then that's good, whether or not they're circumcised or not. Because the Ten Commandments are those... The Ten Commandments is how... We relate to God in his essential nature. And the Jews, even though that their circumcision cannot oversee, even though their circumcision cannot undo their breaking of the law, yet they have great advantages in being recipients of the mercy of God to be given the law in the first place. That they can read and therefore they are even doubly held accountable by God. That's why the blessing and the cursing is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Because they had the oracles of God, the words of God, which describe him and who he is and what he's like and what he demands of us. And that's what this truth here certainly applies to us Christians. If you can just break the law of God, it doesn't matter if you're baptized. It doesn't matter if you partake of the Lord's Supper. Does it? it doesn't even matter if you hold the Reformed theology. God is not a respecter of persons. Your religion cannot undo that essential relationship to God. And he has blessed us with having an understanding that we relate to God in the Ten Commandments. Therefore, we are doubly inexcusable, even more so than the Jews, because not only do we have the law, but we have the prime example of the law, Jesus Christ. How much more so should we seek to please our God? That not only do we have the oracles of God, but we have the Word of God, with capital W, Jesus Christ, the Word of God.